0: Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite of food writers. It's about life, culture and politics all through the prism of food. And this week, as it's Lent, we're off to fast in Cyprus with Georgina Hayden.
1: The way we do Lent over here, which is, oh, I might give up chocolate, or I might give up cheese. No, these meat-eating carnivores who love a grill have given up all animal products for almost 50 days. That's a really, really big deal. They've gone hardcore.
0: Her book, Nestissima, borrows the vegan dishes from the Greek Orthodox Church, which frames her family life and looks deeply at fasting as a rich vein of inspiration for meat and dairy-free recipes. But it's about much more than food. It's about how family, festival and ritual creates a rich food culture which connects us with where food comes from and why, as Socrates says, we eat to live. We began by discussing just how hard it is to find a gap in those bookshelves these days and what it takes to get a book deal.
1: It's You're so right. It's really hard to write a cookbook now. You know, it's, it's quite... There are a lot of amazing food writers out there um, and it's such a it's such an honour to actually get a book deal. I think there was a time when actually they felt like it was very saturated whereas now it's quite hard isn't it um I think the key thing is Mm. if if you've got you know there's lots of things at play in terms of getting a book deal aren't there you've got to have a really original idea um if you've got an idea that no one's seen before it doesn't matter about your profile it doesn't matter about things like social media so much you're going to get a book deal but then if you've got an idea that has maybe been seen before because that's okay right like there's you don't only have one veg book. You don't only have one roasting tin book. There are many. So if you've got an idea that's been seen mm. before, I think the thing that helps you there is your profile. Things like social media, things like television, radio, XYZ. So there's lots of things at play, but it definitely feels like it's harder than ever to get a book deal. So I do feel really honoured to have written this book. But at the same time, I don't think it's really been done before. Not, not you know, anything recently at all, you know, in, in that sense. So it's, you know, I'm really chuffed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I did a, a series recently for the André Simon shortlist. And at the beginning of each of the episodes, Yesimi Arutzala, the the food assessor, kind of gave us this masterclass in what it takes to be an award winning food book. And it is originality and it is voice. And actually, I think that has to come from something very personal. And that's mm. what you do, isn't it? I mean, this book is all about your childhood. Again, it's about your family. It's full of your yaya's, both of them. But it's also about a real piece of that childhood. It's about fasting. That feels quite original to me. How did you kind of land on that particular idea of it? Tell us the Eureka lightbulb moment.
1: (laughs) Do you know what? There really was a Eureka lightbulb moment. It was when I was writing the book before. So I'd written Taverna and Taverna is... um, all about my heritage, so really personal, Greek, Cypriot, all about my family. And I'd written that, and it's a well-rounded book. There's everything in there, meat, veg, fish, everything. And I was writing it, and I was doing all the publicity, and every time I was talking to people about it, you know, you'd get the question, is there any vegetarian food in there? Are there vegan dishes, X, Y, Z? And I found myself repeating myself a lot, saying, actually, the thing is about Greek and Cypriot food is we eat predominantly vegan and veg, However, everyone associates it with things like sauve and grills, whatnot, because that's what we're famous for. But the reality is because of our orthodox um, orthodoxy and our faith, um, we actually don't eat meat most of the year. You know, if you're doing it really strictly like um, a ya-ya or, um, you know, like older generations, you can do around 200 days a year where you're not eating any dairy or animal products. So... As a result, our diet is very vegan centric. And that just, I found myself talking about it so much. I thought, hold on, hold on. If I'm boring people about this, I need to put my money where my mouth is and I need to write about it and look into it. So it started from there. And I spoke to my editor and I said, look, I think there's something in this. You know, it's fascinating. It's not a book. I don't envision this being a book that is preachy at all. I want it to be factual and historical. And I want to look into why we eat so many vegan dishes. But at the same time, I want it to be a celebration of the fact that you can eat a plant based diet without any effort or trying to convert existing recipes into vegan recipes. You know, if you look beyond your your own repertoire of dishes, you look to other cultures, you'll find that there are like there's so many dishes and recipes that just happen to be vegan. And I think that's what interested me. Things that just happen to be vegan, not things that are made vegan, things that just already are so when I started looking at the Greek church, I looked at our dishes and then it stemmed from there. And I thought, hold on, I need to go a bit further. So the Orthodox Church, I was like, let's look at the surrounding countries that are affected as well. So, you know, topically, Russia, Ukraine. I spoke to and um, Timoshkina and Olya Hercules. I went to, you know, spoke to people in Serbia, Syria, Lebanon, and down to Egypt. And all these countries are sort of, you know, they're all neighbours at the end of the day. So the dishes are there's lots of familiarity between the dishes you know you get a variation of dolma or bebia dolma there's stuffed vine leaves they they you know travel throughout the countries in one form or another
0: i mean that's what i love about it it is deep um, I love the feeling of traveling when I'm reading about food I but you know I don't just want to kind of skim the surface and do a city break version of it I want to go deep and I want to find out about mm. the religion I really do I'm fascinated <laughs> as we all are and you know it's all around yeah. us isn't it I remember oh. talking to Saleha um, Mahmoud Ahmed when she was talking about foodology on the show and she was talking about fasting as part of her upbringing and every weekend you know they didn't just they were they were taught to fast by just having brunch a little bit later on a saturday and it was just about not eating sort of you know just because you do but actually as part of a ritual and it trains you to really understand and love food and appreciate food and and I also talked to the natural flavour guys um and they went back to Jamaica when they got their their first you know published book deal or they self published their first one and they bumped into this rich rasta tradition that was all part of their family all of which is vegan so you know they are really uh, these ideas are not sort of being brought out just to tick a box of a trend. This is digging deep into all of our heritage here. This is a very eclectic food culture we live in now. Let's find out more about it. It's fantastically interesting. What one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Georgie Socrates. Is that your maiden name?
1: <laughs> so my maiden name yeah. Socrates is the first but well, it's a first name. So Socrates is when it's your first name and Socratus is when it's your surname. So for me I was Georgius Socrates so it's my surname that was a that was a belter don't know why I got to do that i don't know my husband can hear <laughs> <laughs> so you are Georgie Socrates how on earth did I you know, I know I know madness
0: it reminded yeah. me of epicurus carolyn still yeah. writes about this in sotopia she says you know Ap- epicurus is one of the most misunderstood philosophers yeah. of the last two thousand years because you know we think of epicurean as gluttony and feasting yes. but actually what epicurus was all about he was like the king of fasting wasn't he yeah exactly. he was you know everything in moderation and really love it so if you're going for a long walk a glass of water on a really hot day is absolutely delicious exactly and and that's what fasting teaches you isn't exactly. it?
1: exactly so that's the so the first quote in the book is is socrates so it's uh you know eat to live not live to eat and when i first heard that quote however many decades years ago um i remember being horrified because i was like wow my namesake how can we be so different you know i definitely lived to eat i just didn't understand it at all whereas as i sort of researched fasting more and understood more i genuinely think what socrates is saying is is about an appreciation and about fueling ourselves and nourishing ourselves i don't think what he's saying is oh, I'm someone who doesn't want to eat. I just need it, you know, the calories to get by in a day. I think it's more a case of listen to what your body is saying and fuel it. And I think that's the thing that fasting has taught me. It's about, you know, so nowadays we have things like Veganuary or Meat Free Monday. These are not new ideas. It doesn't matter how clever we think we are. We are not. This has been going on for centuries. And I think this is precisely what he means. It's the idea of Of course, indulgence is fantastic and we all have to have moments of it. But at the same time, to really appreciate those moments, you have to have a sense of balance. There has to be the times where you're not indulging and when you are listening to your body. And for me, as someone writing a vegan book as a non-vegan, I think has actually been a really fascinating process. You know, there are so many, there are a lot of vegan books out now, and that's a brilliant thing. But I would say the majority are written by people who live that way. And actually, for me, it's a sense of balance. It's a sense of listening to myself Mm. and understanding my body. And I think that's exactly what those very, very clever gentlemen were referring to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in order to save the planet, we need to eat 30% less meat anyway. Totally. Um, the National Food Strategy is certainly s- suggesting that it's a it's a great way to, to find some balance in, in our lives. For sure. And appreciate things and come alive a little bit more. Mm. Um, the book's coming out at this time of year which is lent it's in time for easter as you say you know you've talked to Alyssa and olya about ukraine and russia and you you know you've talked to all sorts of people from all over the world who celebrate easter easter is a really important part of the calendar to so many people tell us what it was like when you were growing up (laughs) in (laughs) london that you were going back to cyprus all the time but what was your easter like
1: oh my gosh like easter for me is way way bigger than Christmas. It trumps Christmas in every way. I love it. It's such a big deal. And, you know, people celebrate different holidays for different reasons. You know, not everyone who celebrates Christmas, most, you know, a lot of people probably don't go to church and that's totally fine. You celebrate it for whatever reason you want. I'm never going to judge. But for people that are religious, especially the Orthodox faith, Easter is a huge deal. You know, it's a four day celebration. When I've been in Cyprus for Easter, you know, you're getting up at five o'clock going to church, drinking uzo at 7am. As a child. <laughs> yes, as a child. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's a really big deal. You know, so on Easter Sunday, so you, you've essentially fasted for 40 to 50 days, depending on how the calendar falls. You haven't eaten any animal products. Forget the way we do Lent over here, which is, oh, I might give up chocolate. Or I might give up cheese. No, these meat-eating carnivores who love a grill have given up all animal products for almost 50 days. That's a really, really big deal. They've gone hardcore. Then the week before Easter is spent, so you know, you've got Easter on the Sunday. So that week is spent making really traditional breads. There's a, there's even a type of cheese that is created just for Easter Sunday called flauna cheese. And this cheese is made just to make one type of bread. Like it's that big deal. So you spend two, three days making the flaunas. You get up at 5 a.m. and go to church. You have your uzo, you have your zivania. And then on Easter Sunday, so my favorite Easter of all time was spent in the mountains in Cyprus with my granddad, my paternal granddad's farm. And you get up at seven, you go to church, and then in the village they've got whole lambs on spits that get put on in the morning. They're basted in red wine or oregano. This, you know, it's really basic stuff. We're not talking like high end stuff. Here. It's really simple food. The wood ovens, the communal wood ovens are lit the school the village school has got games in the courtyard and the whole street is just lined with plastic tables and chairs and the village just feasts and parties all day and it's like the best big fat greek wedding you've ever been to in your life it's amazing (laughs) you know you can keep your turkey and your cranberry sauce for i can concerned a slow cooked lamb on a spit after 40 (laughs) odd days of not eating anything it's just like the way to go it's it's brilliant so
0: fun god i'm salivating your first food (laughs) moment takes us just to before that amazing feast it's when the fasting is Mm. still happening so your first food moment is lagana it's the clean monday it's a bread you make on clean monday tell us about that one yes
1: so um so over you know in 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 the uk at least you have uh you have pancake day and then you have um ash wednesday don't you and that's when lent starts so for us um you have you have to really gear up because it is such a big deal you have to gear up for this period of fasting so the we start fasting on a monday and that monday is called gathara deftera which li- literally translates as gathara means clean and deftera is monday clean monday The week before Gatara Deftera, you have um, Cheese Week, Cheese Fair Week, which is the week when you have to eat all the dairy in your fridge. And before that, a few days beforehand, you have something called Smoky Thursday, which is... When you start, you have to finish all the meat in your fridge and freezer. So you, the, you know, the build up as well to get to is a big deal. You've got smoky, smoky Thursday, you've got, you know, cheese week, you have to eat all your dairy, and then bam, you've prepared for a week and a half, eaten all your animal products, and it's Clean Monday. Clean Monday is a bank holiday in Cyprus and Greece. All the schools and all the, everything's shut. And people traditionally would have almost like picnics. Um, They would fly kites to be closer to the divine. And there is one bread that is only really should be made on this day. And it's called Lagana. And it's a bit like what we like an Italian focaccia. It's a thin bread. Um, Traditionally, it wasn't um, it wasn't leaven. It didn't have any yeast in it. That was, you know, it was made in biblical times. And in the situations it was made, there wasn't any yeast. But now we put yeast in it. It's just a bit more delicious. Um, and it's olive oil and it's got sesame on top. And it's very simple. But in the way that focaccia is one of those breads that you just, you know, you start and you can't stop. I sort of feel like, I know you shouldn't need it on cattara I kind of like making it all year round because it's so tasty. And actually, you know, you that's the one, it's a really significant dish. And, and it's it was really conscious to start the book with that recipe. That was a really conscious decision. You know, we, fee- we, fast all year round every wednesday every friday there's lots of periods of fasting it isn't just easter however the easter fast is the big one it's called great lent so that was a conscious decision to put it first and i think it's a great recipe
0: it is a great recipe and it's yeah it's a real celebration of Sensible grandmother behaviour, you know, clean out the back of the fridge and, you know, use it up in some great cooking. You know, it's about zero waste. It's about, you know, not spending money on nonsense consumer products, you know, in shrink wrap trays. It's so, how, how come there are so many Uh, cultures all around the world that really celebrate and make joy out of being sensible Mm. so lost it in white middle England (laughs) oh
1: honestly you're so right and I think it's the thing is that I keep looking back to all these things I'm like why is it the grannies, the Ayas, the nonnas, all these like you know the older generations that they all just got it right? And I'm and it's the women. Let's be honest with ourselves. Yeah. It is the women. They know what they're doing. They knew what they're doing. Like I still look to. I've still lucky. It's got one of my ayahs with me, you know. And I just think it's. And unfortunately, I think obviously there's a you know it comes to things like money. You know, now everyone has a lot, lot more money. We're, 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 we're richer, but we're time poor. And it's that really boring thing, which is why all the kind of popular cookbooks that are out in the world are always like speedy or less washing up. You know, they all tick those boxes because unfortunately that's kind of where the majority of us are, right? We have more money, but we don't have time. Whereas when you look to the older generations, the ones that we like, you know, like the pasta grannies, that sort of vibe, mm. they have time. You know, my, yeah, yeah is there's never a day where she's not cooking for the entire family and she's mm. 83 you know and she's like she's smashing it still she still yeah. cooks absolute feasts and that's because she has the time she'll sit there and pod her peas she'll do what she does it will take her two days but she loves it and unfortunately that's just not necessarily realistic but I think we still need to tap into that mentality to like to really appreciate stuff to really understand where our food comes from and and, and connect with our food as opposed to just being this quick fix thing, you know. I, I really believe that.
0: Yeah, no, so, t- so do I. And, you know, you live in North London, but it's the little Mediterranean, really. Yeah. I mean, it's like growing up in Cyprus and yeah. London, all <laughs> surrounded by yayas, you know, the perfect place. Totally. Um, I, mean, I was talking to a Yasmin totally. Khan about living in North London in little Istanbul, and she's just surrounded by yeah. the lovely smells of, you know, her mixed cultural mm. background as well. In your. North London, are those granny skills still around? You talk about Irene in your second <gasps> yeah. food moment. You know, what she got yeah. that Joan down the road in West London hasn't got?
1: What <laughs> <laughs> is going um, on? I think... Do you know what it is? I think you've nailed it there. I think it's having, and this is, I don't think this is a London-centric viewpoint. I think you have this all around the country. I'm married to a, a northerner, you know, and whilst the village he's from is, is predominantly English, you know, I know having spent time up there now, I know there's pockets everywhere you go from different ethnicities. I think the reason people congregate is for this reason, right? So I actually do live in quite ironically a Cypriot area. I didn't grow up here, so I grew up more central in london and um i've just ended up living in an area that is quite cypriot um and i actually really like it and that's not the reason we came here we came here for different reasons but it is there's a loveliness to the fact that i can go to my local shop which is in Is deli which is literally the closest shop to my house and the the items the food items the smells are familiar and i can imagine if you're someone you know i'm a second generation greek cypriot but i can imagine if you're first generation or you've moved from a different country being connected you know like we're looking you know there's we've obviously got you know ukrainians hopefully come into the uk now and and trying to make sure they sort of congregate so there in with people they know or familiarity and i think that's a really important yeah. thing so when people first came here for whatever reason they came they, they want to stick with people and, and vibes and smells and sounds they know. So around me for sure, like I don't live that far from Yasmin. I'm the other side of Green Lanes and I we nickname this side of Green Lanes Greek Lanes because it is so Greek <laughs> and it's brilliant. And it's just, it's amazing. And, and there is something lovely about that. And so with Irini... Um, the deli is it is fantastic you know they've all they've all been brought and raised in up in the UK like me but you go in there and again there's no and this I don't mean this in a sexist way at all but it's all women that work there so Elinia's mum owns it with Elinia's sister she cooks their cousin works there and they've got an older lady who works there and it's just this lovely vibe it feels like you're going into someone's home it feels very maternal you know, at any given point, we went in yesterday, someone was podding some broad beans or peas or something, you know, like there's always, it just feels very homely. And I think that's the thing especially when you live in a city i think that's rare because there's lots of glitz and glamour you go in central london what's the new hottest dish what's everyone instagramming let's let's go there the thing is you go there that's great but then you've moved on to the next thing they're not the places that you return back to because you've had that wicked dish let's try the next wicked dish that's fashionable at the moment but it's places like herini's deli and like that that make you feel a sense of home and that's priceless
0: yeah, but if you say that she sits in a small courtyard rolling vine leaves, you are going to get the whole of <laughs> London going to Arinis, and then she's going to be in the next book of, you know, cool places to find in London.
1: <laughs> and so they should. Well, exactly.
0: But it'll be spoilt in a way, wouldn't it? You know, isn't that what That's happens? Well... Wow yeah
1: it does but then you know we don't live on a tube line and I can't imagine it ever becoming like I mean it might and they deserve it if they do but they're just that what they make is just the best versions of themselves I think that's the other thing you know there's lots of people doing clever things with recipes and there's a there's a complete place for that as well you know I think there's a place for all types of chefing all types of cooking but there's there's something just so lovely about cooks and people that unashamedly just keep, keeps tradition and don't you know there's 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 room for everyone I think yeah
0: feeders I think they're feeders that's where the joy comes from and, and they are aren't they you know you can spot a feeder a mile off yeah. they're the people who are not frightened of getting it wrong and they're the people who just do it for the love of it and totally. you know they don't get a bad back and from rolling vinyls they just do it because they want to feed you yeah. um tell us about the yeah. vegan kefteris that she makes
1: oh my goodness so kefteris are you know, all over Greece and Cyprus. So in Greece, you different places have different things. So if you go to Santorini, they have tomato kofteuthers. If you go to different islands, they have chickpea ones. Some have wild greens. In Cyprus, our are meat-based and there. So they make them with pork. Um, and they're really, really delicious. They're deep fried meatballs, essentially, um, with grated potato, lots of meat, spices, lots of herbs, onion, and they're sort of made into little patties. They're, and they're deep fried and they're dark brown. And, I have over the years because obviously we fast a lot um i've over the years tried so many different people's attempts at a vegan cafeftetta, even my own yayas, yeah both of them right I've tried it and then I tried it in his and honestly, they are incredible i've never ever had not only are they incredible, I would guarantee you that most people wouldn't clock straight away that they're vegan, they taste so meaty. So the thing for me is, I was vegetarian for a very long time. I even dabbled with veganism when I was younger. It wasn't for me. However, I never wanted to replicate the taste of meat. That's not something that appeals to me. When I didn't eat meat, I didn't want to eat meat. So, and now when I fast as well, I'm not looking to replicate a meatiness. And I know that's my next dish as well, but... There's something about these kifteves. They're just and all she—it's just vegetables. It's just you know s- standard supermarket things: tomatoes, potatoes, carrots. It's nothing fancy. She doesn't put anything weird in it. That is not from the veg aisle. And yet she's created this recipe that is just phenomenal. And people, no joke, not even just Cypriots, everyone in the area knows about these Giftedes. People come far and wide for them. Um, And and when she said she'd agreed to put them in the book, I was just like, I literally had tears in my eyes. I was like, are you sure about this? This is game changing. So I was really honoured
0: they're amazing. Oh. And you and your third food moment, it kind of is on the same theme, isn't it? You know, if you yeah. if you talk about a Greek classic stifado you know, slow cooked beef in red yeah. wine and spices, oh my god, it you know, again, salivating madly here. <laughs> but you've done it with mushroom to replace mm. meat. But where does this idea come from?
1: So we had a restaurant for almost thirty years. My my paternal grandparents had a restaurant for almost thirty years. My dad worked there growing up. It was all my childhood is based around the restaurant. And when I was about eight, eight or nine, someone, a regular customer said to my dad, I bet you can't go for a month without eating meat. Now... My dad is a stereotypical Cypriot man. He looks like Al Pacino. He's slightly terrifying. <laughs> he ate meat three meals a day, chain smokes, only drinks coffee, is an absolute legend, right? He's wicked. And you can imagine this very, very sort of typical Greek man, someone saying to him, "Bet you can't give up meat for a month. And my dad was like, all right, I'll prove it to you. So this is the late 80s now. Dad gives up meat for a month. 32 years later, he still hasn't touched meat. Wow. So that was absolutely, uh, everyone was like gobsmacked. He just has, he eats fish in fairness, but he just hasn't touched meat since. He felt so great. And I'm not vegetarian. So I'm, again, I just want to be, just to point this out. I'm not preaching anything on anyone because I am not vegetarian. I'm just telling you the story of my dad. But he just felt so great. He was like, I'm just not going to eat meat. And unlike maybe people that do vegetarianism for other reasons, he's always said, listen, George, if I want a steak, I'll have a steak. He's never had a steak, but he has that mentality. He doesn't, he's not doing this for anyone other than himself. He's just, it does, it's just his life now. So anyway, so my yeah obviously was horrified because, oh my goodness, Cypriots at that point as well just did not understand vegetarianism. So she was horrified. So we've spent the best part of 30 years, yeah, making dishes vegetarian for my dad and now my sister who don't eat meat. And Manedaria Stifado, so using mushrooms in Stifado, came from her. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people that do. but I don't think she's probably the first person, because obviously texturally mushrooms are, have got that meatiness, mm. haven't they? Um, but it was always something she did for my dad. So when he stopped eating meat all those years ago, she did it with mushrooms. And I've just grown up eating Stifado predominantly. I can't actually remember the last time I had it with beef, other than when I cook it now as an adult. Growing up, I don't think I ever had it with beef, because it was mushrooms. And it's just so delicious. And again, I think they're the two recipes in the book that, like I said, I never went about with the intention of making anything meaty. I just want to celebrate all these incredible dishes in their own right. But if you're looking for something that is like a Sunday situation, you want to make something impressive, that is slow cook, very little effort, leave it in the oven, and but with maximum impact. That's kind of the recipe I would suggest. Do you know what yes. I mean? It's like... It's going to appeal to everyone. Yeah. You'll put it at the table and your carnival friends won't care or miss me. That's what I think. Yeah.
0: You know what? I mean, it's nothing new. I hear it all the time whenever I talk to people who come from the richer food cultures from around the world. But you're talking about family. You're talking about ritual. You're talking about festivals. And it, over the last few decades, it feels that British food culture has become very empty of family, of tradition, of ritual, mm. of religion. Mm. And I wonder when you're talking about this rich story of people at the table every Sunday and growing up around big family and, you know, the year being punctuated by festivals and saints days and ritual. I Mm. wonder if British food culture, which is so eclectic and so inspired by such a varied mix and wonderful sort of immigrant cultures coming in and spicing us up. Mm. without religion, without family at the centre of it, ha- can it really be a food culture of its own?
1: Gosh, that's a really, really interesting question. I mean, it's that's a really hard one to answer. And I think, again, being sort of for me you know like living in a city which is super multicultural i guess i've never really had that you know i have never really had that and actually do you know what occurs to me the other day i'm probably going for a tangent here it's just this is my my brain brain thinks i've obviously grown up with a very very rich heritage in food having grown up in a restaurant and and being obviously from where i'm from like cyprus and whatnot but even my husband, who who is the first to say that his mother is maybe not the best cook in the world. Sorry, Heather. But, you know, he's the first one to say his mum wasn't the best oh. cook. Um, they had the same weekly menu their whole life. You know, every Monday was bangers and mash. However, isn't there something lovely about that? And I used to tease Heather, my mother-in-law, about the fact that, you know, she had the same thing every Monday every Tuesday. Didn't you get bored? But now I look at that with so much respect in a way because of what you're saying, because of this sort of so there's so much going on. Actually, I look at my own daughters and I'm like, I, do I start, do I need to start making things regularly so you have nostalgia, so you have heritage with your food? I mean, they're going to get it inevitably because I'm sipping, I cook a lot of separate food. So, I, I'm, you know, they're not going to exactly be, they're fine at the end of the day. But because I cook so much food for my job, because every day I'm cooking different dishes constantly, I became really aware recently that these girls aren't regularly getting the same dish twice. And whilst that's probably not a bad thing, people are like, oh, first of all, problems, not really an issue. Isn't there something lovely about nostalgia and heritage with food, whether it comes from religion, whether it comes from your family, whatever the reason is? I think there's something really beautiful about that and I think the connect that connection with food is what grounds us. Otherwise, you're just always chasing new things and there's no and I think for a lot of people where food's important. Well, actually not even where food's important. I think everyone has an associational memory with food. You know, and I, I don't think you even have to necessarily be what we consider a foodie or a chef or whatever. Like everyone does right? And I think that's something that we need to really focus on. And that's, you know, you know this about me. That's something that all my writing, all my books is for me is super personal in that in that nostalgic way. And I, th- I just think that's lovely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But it's the world that you paint around the food that is Mm. so important. And your fourth food moment is about play and fun. And, you know, you're talking about nostalgia. You're talking about a childhood memory here. But there are kids who are growing up within your culture who are still experiencing this now. This is the meat we're talking about things, but this is the meat of food culture i think across the globe tell us about this one. Oh, it's so true so oh my goodness
1: okay i mean now i can appreciate this but i'm telling you something as a child being dragged to church fates in 45 degree heat in cyprus in august was not my idea of a good time right so we got sent to cyprus almost every summer summer holidays six weeks long what do you do with children i'm starting to appreciate why my parents did this they would often send us to cyprus with our grandparents off you go bye bye and because they weren't always there it meant we were left at the hands of my grandmother um, my paternal one particularly, not so much my maternal one, she didn't really drive. But that meant lots of church visits. So whilst me and my sister were there just wanting to hit the beach, we had other ideas. And that meant every weekend there was a church fate. So on the island, almost every weekend, it's someone's Saints Day, right? There's a Saint Day almost every day <laughs> of the year. So that meant every weekend we're going to go to one part of the island, there's a church so and so, somewhere, and they're having a fate to celebrate Saint so-and-so. And I'm like, this is brilliant, thanks so much. And these church fates they were super basic you know I remember they're not being toilets they're being holes in the ground you know we're talking you know the 80s not much money but there was so much charm and they were so beautiful and I look back and I think gosh how lucky to have gone through that you know there was like a very basic tombola a little like um is it like bagatelle is that the word like where you have like the the game i think that's what they call it over here and you win these big teddy bears and these retro style toys and then you know there would be a few stalls of souvla, so meat cooked over charcoal and then there was the sweet stall and they would have all the different sweets and there was always someone deep frying lokomades, which are essentially like tiny little round donuts that are then drenched in a sugar syrup um and something called shamishi. so shamishi is it's not like Locke lots of people seem to know nowadays. Like, they've sort of become quite popular. You get Locke stores stalls over here. You get them in bakeries. It's not just Cypriots and Greeks that know about them. Whereas Shamishi is something that still feels quite unknown about because of the they're quite laborious. And you have to eat them almost instantly. You can't buy them in bakeries and whatnot. And what they are, they are deep fried parcels of um of custard <laughs> essentially. So you make a custard with semolina, orange blossom, really delicately floral, and that custard is set, and then it's set and then it's cut into little cubes and it's enrobed in phyllo pastry, which is then deep fried and drenched in a cinnamon icing sugar. It is so ludicrously delicious. You know, in the way that only a deep fried pastry filled with custard can be, which sounds ridiculous that i can even tell you that is vegan but it's vegan right because the custard's made of water but it gets its creaminess from the semolina it gets its perfume from a little bit of orange blossom if you don't like that you can add orange zest that's cool i won't judge and you know i say making phyllo but actually making phyllo is actually very easy and then you deep fry them and and the response when people eat these parcels of joy they just, it, it's insane. It makes people so happy. There's so much nostalgia there. And I love the fact that this recipe kind of still is unknown about. You know, I don't really know anyone other than Cypriots that have heard of it. And um, and it's something that has to be eaten instantly. So there's just this lovely instant joy. And it's one of my strongest memories of my childhood. And it was probably the only thing that kept me going to those, the banaides, to these fates, because, you know, they were really quite, boring for a seven-year-old other than the shamishi, That was where I headed every time, straight there. (laughs) (laughs) Little parcels of joy, how gorgeous. Um,
0: Nistissima means fasting food and you have tapped into this rich vein of your own heritage. But actually, you know, we talked about the depth before, but you did speak to a lot of priests as part of your research. It's about more than food, isn't it? It's about... the spiritual in the food you know nostalgia is a kind of spirituality yeah. isn't it it's also about resilience as well and self-sufficiency and you talk about the priests who you interviewed you know being very self-sufficient growing their own food as as a lot of monks and priests have always done yeah. did it really connect you with your spiritual self do
1: you know what it really did i'm i'm the first person you know i'm not I'm not as religious as some people. I'm probably more religious than others. I'm not, um, I'm very sort of, I'd say middle. But I found whatever it is, however you come to the book, whether it's because you are orthodox and you want to have more of a repertoire for when you fast, or you are someone who is vegan and you just want more vegan recipes, or you are just a normal Joe carnivore who just wants to up your vegan intake. I genuinely think that regardless of your faith there is a spirituality that comes from sort of connecting this way and the book feels, it feels so calm and there's such a, and, I, and that's not me blowing my own trumpet here because it's a hundred percent a team effort, you know, there's photographers, stylists, all of those people involved that have really created this thing of beauty that, um, I think, It reflects the calmness that comes through the cooking none of the recipes i would say are particularly challenging or taxing and that's the way i think really nistissimo food should be you know when i was talking to the monks i spoke to um i've got a (laughs) love i've got a lovely monk in uh, lebanon on whatsapp called father augustine he's wonderful he's been very helpful you know I've been talking to the monks in Mount Athos on email that's been quite sporadic but again they've been fantastic and then my local priest at a local church you know so I've been speaking to different people and I think the key thing that I've learned by speaking and 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 also nuns I visited some wonderful nuns in Cyprus and I think the thing is the simplicity of their food is where the beauty is and I think that's And we talk, you know, everyone has quite stressful lives nowadays. I talk about everyone being time poor. We are time poor. There's a lot of anxiety and that's something to really, I think, take into account. So I think regardless of your faith, a book like this, connecting to the food, connecting to the recipes, it's just calming. And I think that's a really important thing to focus on because regardless of what you believe, for me, when I was cooking a lot of the dishes, they just sort of made me feel the way a risotto slowly cooking a risotto sort of calms you there's a similar vibe one of my favorite recipes in the book is a serbian dish and it's these very simple beans hardly any ingredients you're talking a hefty amount of onions eight onions garlic and they're just slowly cooked in oil for a good 30 40 minutes and that sweetness and it was a monk in Mount Athos who said, you know, the key thing with when you're not having animal products in foods is, is the time and the sweetness that comes from your ingredients. You think, how can something so simple be so delicious? You then add the beans, you add some paprika, a bay leaf, and you leave it in the oven for a, a, literally two hours. And I made them recently for a, a group of f- fellow food writers, and they were all just gobsmacked at these beans and how delicious they were. And I think that's the key thing, isn't it? we just need to connect. And that feeling inside, yeah, it made me feel more spiritual. And that sounds very cheesy. And I really don't want it to be. But there's, it's at a time when we were going through a pandemic, you know, I'd had a newborn baby, things were stressful. I I really felt the book was, for me, at least very timely. And, and, and it did what it said on the tin in a lot of ways. Fasting to slow down should have been the subtitle. Why didn't you do that one? I mean, because you weren't there to tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I should call you next time. (laughs) I'll give you a call, yeah? Book four. Speed dial.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening. Please do get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Julie Smith on Instagram and at Julie Smith on Twitter. And you can sign up for my newsletter at JillySmith.com. I'll be back next week with the authors of Feed Your Family, Nicole Pisani and Joanna Weinberg, to talk about the brilliant charity, Chefs in Schools.